There is corn out there that has no cob whatsoever. We are continuing to get sporadic reports of leaf hoppers. What about pricing this cobless corn silage? 35 bushel per acre oats. It's the worst oat crop this grower has ever grown. Good day and welcome to Wheat Beats Word here on realagriculture.com for Thursday, August the 11th. Yes, a day late. Just way too busy early this week to get it done before now. Next week, we will be up back on Wednesday because that's the way my schedule's working out. On this episode of The Word, dry, dang it, where's the rainfall? More management strategies around the drought. So insect management, new alfalfa seeding management, emergency silage because the livestock guys are in critical shape. After that, some manure questions, managing it out there on the wheat stubble and a couple of specifics that have come in over the last week. Let's go. Yes, it is incredibly dry. So a few people that are being very fortunate. One girl I talked to, he said, I hate to admit it, Peter, but we've caught some thunderstorms. We're in really great shape. My corn is 11 feet tall and I can't believe the cobs are 16 to 20 rows around and 37 to 50 kernels long. Wow. If only we all had gotten moisture, maybe all the crops would be like the wheat crop was this year. Really, really above average. It's not the way it is. So it is incredibly dry. The way that shakes out in the corn crop, there is corn out there that has no cob whatsoever, did not pollinate, particularly you get east of Toronto or into the Niagara Peninsula. They're the worst hit areas. And that corn is of course, zero yield. For most corn though, on better soils, we're really looking at corn that is just now starting to show severe dry weather impacts. It's starting to fire from the bottom up. The leaves are rolling through the heat of the day, absolutely. That hurts yield, but it hurts yield a little bit. When you are looking at that to make you feel a bit better for those of you that still have a chance in this corn crop, as long as the leaves don't fire above the cob, you can lose all the leaves below the cob. It doesn't have a huge impact on yield. Oh, you won't get the 250 or the 280, but you can still look at 160, 180, even if you lose those leaves right up to the cob. Once it fires above the cob and on the eroded knolls in the drier areas, it's absolutely firing above the cob. In the super dry areas on light sands, it's actually burnt right to the top. That's all bad news. We know that. But for the better soils, just to go out there and have a, a look and make yourself feel a wee bit better, as long as it doesn't fire above the cob, we should not be in as bad a shape as what you might expect given the lack of rainfall. On the hay front, Wow. Hay at the auction in Mount Forest, the top hay at 13.5 cents a pound was the top bid or top price on hay. Now that's an auction, so perhaps it's a little bit higher than other places, but normally you'd be looking at nine or 10 cents. And if there's good supply, eight cents, that just shows you there's been no second cut, no third cut, and we don't have nearly as much of a supply of baled hay for the horse market as what we normally would because that tends to be the later harvested hay that makes that market. First cut was awesome for most people in southwestern Ontario. When you go east of Toronto though, in the eastern Ontario, central Ontario area, even the first cut wasn't that good. So hay is incredibly short supply and that's why that price is going up. I mentioned the last update about spring cereals. A caller from eastern Ontario, 35 bushel per acre oats. It's the worst oat crop this grower has ever grown. Last year he was at 135. Normally he expects 90 to 100 on a poor year. He would 
would say, gosh, we still get 65 or 70 bushel oats at least. 35 bushel per acre oats. Thankfully, his winter wheat was a good solid average to above average. It's all about when you use moisture for sure. And it just shows you that you're better off not to have all your eggs in one basket. Okay, enough on that. How do we deal with this? First up, spider mites. There's more and more and more reports on spider mites to the point we're now essentially out of the dimethoate product. So remember, with spider mites, we have to use dimethoate. Saigon or Lagon, those are the product names because they kill spider mites. Most of the other insecticides, or in fact, all the other insecticides that we normally use, they kill all the beneficials, don't kill the spider mites. So we are forced into dimethoate in that situation and supply. There's a little bit of supply left at a few agribusinesses, but we are out of the dimethoate products. Well, you might say that's awful. We can't spray anymore. But remember that we only want to spray those soybeans from horse bond or the soybean lead with Omafra up till R5.5 or R6. So in that process, R5 is when the seed in the top pods, the top four nodes, when the seed is three millimeters long in the pod. So essentially you can tell if there's one, two, three, or four seeds in the pod. By the time you can tell that in those top four nodes, that's R5. R6 is when those seeds totally fill the pod cavity. So we're sort of in that game with a lot of the soybeans out there or getting close to that. That's when we'd stop spraying anyway. After that, the spider mites can take the leaves off. The plants in to dry down and can translocate out of the stem doesn't do nearly as much damage as you might think. So yeah, a bit of an issue. We're out of product, but we're getting close, so maybe it won't hurt us as much as we think. Spider mites, by the way, not only on soybeans this year, but also affecting edible beans and also in the corn crop. On edible beans, basically you have spider mites, same as soybeans, that four spider mites per leaflet or with edibles might even be less. You just go spray because edibles are worth so much. We have no threshold in corn and you probably need an awful lot of spider mites in corn before you would spray them. Uh, Dr. Dave Hooker from Ridgetown College did spray a trial a few years back in corn really didn't see much response so we aren't going to worry about them in the corn crop on soybeans r5.5 to r6 you spray up till that if you have them and you can find product get out there and spray them in edible beans you have them find product get out there and spray them and in corn simply don't worry about them don't forget about leaf hoppers though as well both in alfalfa and in edible beans and of course with alfalfa the matadors the other chemistries work very well we are continuing to get sporadic reports of leaf hoppers in both alfalfa and in edibles. They do the most damage by far when we're under these drought conditions. You have to spray them if you have them out there or they're just going to beat you up hardcore. Okay, so alfalfa. Lots of people with just brutal new seedings and they're really wondering what do we do? We planted them this spring and there's many different scenarios out there. So what you really have to do is step back and, and think about this. You planted them in the spring. Did they have enough moisture to actually germinate? Because that reseed decision, you have to make that based on whether or not the seed's still in the ground and still going to come if you get rain. There's absolutely no point in spending the money on more alfalfa seed if you already have seed sitting in dry storage in the soil. So in the spring, did it germinate? If it germinated in the spring and ran out of moisture and died, then yes, you should consider getting out there and reseeding. Of course, the challenge is, do you have moisture? Because alfalfa needs at least six or eight weeks of growth in the fall to get a big enough plant and a big enough crown to survive the winter. If they didn't germinate, they are sitting there 
there in dry soil. If it rains, they will come. If they get the six to eight weeks of growth, you will have a crop next year. If it doesn't rain till the 20th of September, it doesn't matter whether you reseed today or you don't reseed today. They aren't going to get enough growth almost for sure. And you'll just have to plan on seeding again next spring. If it did germ and die, reseed. If it didn't germ and die, you just have to wait. And it's all about the moisture from here on in. Emergency forage. So oats and lots of questions about nitrogen. Growers saying, I don't have any moisture. Do I plant the oats? What do I do about nitrogen? Yes, you plant the oats. And Tony, I know you said you're going to wait for rain. That's okay. Wait for rain if you want to. Johnson thinks you plant the oats, you take the risk because with oats, even if it doesn't rain until the 1st of September or the 10th of September, if we get a decent fall, you can still get a nice bit of forage by the middle of October or the 1st of November. If you get that six weeks of growth, you can get a nice bit of forage on the oat crop that you can harvest. It doesn't have to overwinter. On the nitrogen front, if you want to plant the oats, you want to save that money on the oat crop because you're not sure if you need the nitrogen at all or if the oat crop is going to make it then wait if you want forage you really need to get the nitrogen on by the three leaf stage before tillering to stimulate that tillering if you're just looking at a cover crop forage isn't in the game then plant the oats don't put the nitrogen on i'm okay with that i don't think there's much residual nitrogen there because the wheat crop was so big but watch the crop as it comes up if it starts to go off color and you really want to build organic matter you want some growth in that crop you need to put 30 pounds of nitrogen on so that's you know 10 gallons of 28 or a about 65 pounds of urea to get you there and do that once you start to see it go off color a little bit but you can wait and try to save those dollars if that's the management strategy that you want to do on silage so we talked a little bit last time about silage and nitrates so far the nitrate levels in corn silage we've already started believe that or not it's only the 11th of august already growers are taking silage off and where it's really burnt up it's at the right moisture so moisture is critical 65 percent or 70 percent depending bunker or tower silo but watch the nitrates we expect the nitrate levels in that crop to stay low until you see rain the critical value is a thousand parts per million of nitrate or 0.44 percent of nitrate nitrogen under that level it's safe if it goes over 4,000 parts per million or 1.76 percent don't feed it in between a thousand and four thousand it's a gray range you'll have to blend it but you probably can still use that and don't forget nitrates in corn silage cause silo gas silo gas kills people don't let anybody get hurt don't expect though a lot of nitrate nitrogen to really spike until we get the rain if you get the rain then that stuff's going to spike you're really going to have to watch those nitrate nitrogen levels. The other thing, Paul called in and said, hey Peter, what about pricing this cobless corn silage? We have corn that's three to four feet tall. We have dairy guys that are just crying for silage. They need feed. They didn't get much hay. How do we price that? There is 1.2 to 1.5 cents of phosphorus and potash per pound of dry matter in that silage. So to convert it a different way, there's about 10 to $12 per ton at 65% moisture in the phosphorus and potash value. So that's sort of a base price in terms of how you price that silage. You'll have to figure that out with your dairy farmer neighbor, but for goodness sakes, you do have to replace that 
P and K. That doesn't put any value on the sulfur. There'll be some sulfur in there or the nitrogen or the organic matter. So we're only pricing phosphorus and potash there. You can move up from there in terms of what that's worth to the dairy grower. Remember that cobbler silage has a lot less energy in it and probably more lignin. So it's probably only 60 to 85% of the energy value of good corn silage that has cobs in there. So this pricing thing gets a little bit dicey, but somewhere in that 10 to $12 per ton range at 65% moisture in the phosphorus and the potash only and build from there. On the crop insurance front, because Paul also asked me about that. First off, crop insurance is going to have something up on their website to help walk you through this thought process around how selling cobless silage or selling very poor corn for corn silage impacts your crop insurance. At the end of the day, the simple answer is the income you get in is deducted from your payout. You're guaranteed at 80%, whatever your guarantee is, that gives you X dollars per acre. If you sell $100 per acre of corn silage off of that acre and you are guaranteed, I don't know, say $600, well, you'll get a payout from crop insurance for $500. Your total payout is the same. The upside of that process is now, rather than having to destroy the crop, which you have to destroy it, so that means you have to do something to it. Now it gets harvested by your neighbor, so you don't have that cost. Plus, you no longer have a zero yield entered. So if you, for example, sell that crop to your dairy farmer neighbor at $100 an acre, if corn's worth $4.30 a bushel, that works out to about a 23 bushel per acre average yield. And so that will factor in, and yes, they do factor zero yields, they factor 23 bushel yields, anything less than 70% yield they factor, which is a good news thing for the grower, but a 23 bushel yield is still long-term going to give you a higher average yield in the future, so that's a good deal for you as well. All right, Jonathan, you asked about manure, you sold your straw, you're spreading dairy manure, and your neighbors are saying, Jonathan, you got to work that before you spread that dairy manure because it's all going to go down through the worm channels, get to the tile. That's a bad news. And, and Jonathan, you're a no-tiller. You're saying, do I really have to work that? Well, intriguingly enough, the longer the manure sits on the surface with no rain, the less that will move off. It needs time to adhere to the soil. The worst case scenario, spread the manure, get the thunderstorm, and that new fresh manure can move down the worm channels, get into the tile. We never lose more than about 1% of the manure. So that's pretty intriguing. 99% stays where we put it, even in the worst case scenario. But gosh, 1% going out is more than we can tolerate. So do you need to work it? If there's no rain in the forecast and you get out there and you get it applied and it sits there for a week with no rainfall, the chances of movement really get to be pretty minimal because it just has enough time to get tied up in that soil. If you are worried about rainfall, then yes, working it before you apply it does break those continuous macropores and does reduce that risk. So the guys with nutrient management plans, they actually have to work it in. The guys without nutrient management plans, they're not forced to, but it is a risk. And remember, if you do cause a spill, if you will, or a contamination problem into the creek, you're the guy that is responsible. So a little bit of a risk there, although with this really dry weather, it probably is a pretty minimal risk. Down the same vein, dry cattle manure. So growers putting on dry cattle manure, working it in, planting the oats, and a question, is it actually worth working that dry cattle manure in? Well, dry cattle manure is much less prone to this movement than liquid manure just by the nature of the beast. And so do you need to work it in? Well, in both the liquid manure and also in the dry manure case, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is odor. You certainly will reduce the odor if you actually can work it into the soil. But past the odor concern with dry manure, yeah, not a big difference whether you
you work in it or not. All right, two other quick questions. Breeders rights on winter barley seed. You can check the website for the variety in, in particular that you're talking about, but I'm not aware of any breeders rights on winter barley seed. I think you could buy some winter barley seed from a neighbor. You won't, won't support any new varieties if you do that, and that's a bad thing, but if the price differential's killing you, I get why you might end up doing that. The other one, soybean seed, treated with a fungicide and an inoculant, and this spring, it basically wouldn't run out of the wagon or run up the auger, ended up moving it with the bucket instead into the drill, and it sat in the wagon for three days. Remember, the reason it wouldn't move is because it's so wet. Sat in the wagon for three days and went back to the field and finished the field or did another field, and that last field, very poor stand, and a lot of cracked seed coats, a lot of split seeds, and a lot of hulls floating around. Well, that seed treatment really shouldn't have made that that wet. I'm struggling to understand why that would. We need to dig more into what happened there. Mostly, you can put the fungicide and the inoculant on the seed, not have that problem. That's it. That's all on behalf of the team here at realagriculture.com. This is Wheat Pete with the word for Thursday, August the 11th. We'll be back next Wednesday. Leave us lots of questions. Leave us lots of comments, and we'll talk to you then. Bye now.